Cool. As Josh said, today we start a short series, just a four-week series in the book of Judges. So as he's saying, like a series through the book of Judges, it's going to be a little bit of a survey and uh, hitting some of the stories and some of the lessons that we can learn through it. Now, the book of Judges, if you're not familiar, it's 21 chapters. It's covering a history of about 400 years, from about 1380 B.C. to about 1050 B.C., and we're not exactly sure of who the author is. There's a little bit debate, a little bit dispute over who the author of Judges is. Like I said, it covers about 400 years in the history of Israel from the time of the death of Joshua until we have the time of the kings. So these judges ruled God's people for a season of about 400 years. And as you read the book of Judges, you're going to read some of the darkest and craziest true stories ever written. Of, of, uh, for sure in all of scripture, but maybe ever written in any books. There's some crazy, dark things that happen in the book of Judges. Do you guys remember these stories here? Let me refresh your memory just a little bit. In early on, like chapter 1, chapter 2, there's a guy who gets his thumbs and his big toes cut off. Okay? Uh, there's a guy who's so fat that the sword that kills him swallows up the sword in his fat. Do you guys remember that? There's child sacrifice in this book. There's a woman who drives a tent peg through a guy's temple, drives a tent peg in a man's temple to kill him. Abimelech, who's Gideon's son, he has his skull caved in by a millstone that was tossed off the wall of the city. And maybe one of the craziest and darkest things is that there's a concubine who was killed and dismembered and pieces of her body sent throughout the land. Dark. Dark, crazy stories. Super dark. And it starts with, um, it starts with this, okay? It starts with the very last line. It sounds weird to say. It starts with the very last line of the book of Judges. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. You hear this phrase repeated a few different times throughout the book, that Israel did not do what was right in the eyes of God. They actually did what was evil in the eyes of God, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And what we see is a, is a pattern of sin repeated over and over and over again. And the pattern is this. If you have that, just throw it up there, right? Sin. And then they're oppressed. So they sin, they worship false gods, and then there comes this time of oppression where they're sold and oppressed by other nations. And then there's a moment where Israel cries out to God and they turn from their idolatry. There's this moment of repentance. But then what happens then is God raises up a judge. There's this moment of deliverance. This judge comes to save them. And the judge brings victory and salvation. And then there's a time of peace. They experience some rest in their land for a period of time, but then the judge dies, and it all starts up again. This cycle of sin happens 12 times, and God raises up a judge each time to help save them. And when you hear the word judge, when you hear the idea of judge, I don't want you to think of a civil judge. I don't want you to think of robes and a gavel or anything like that, okay? I want you to think warrior chiefs. 
okay? Like someone who is a warrior, someone who is a political and military might to help help lead and save the people of God. There's 12 of them listed here. Othniel is the first one. Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, you might know her story a little bit. Gideon, you might know his story a little bit. Tola, Jair, Jephthah, we may talk about him in the next couple of weeks. Ibzan, Elon, who's not the Tesla guy. Abnon, and of course, Samson, the most famous of them all, who might be some of the darkest stories you've ever read. These judges, God raised up. They were not perfect, and actually, at times, they were pretty corrupt. But God used them. He used these broken, even corrupt individuals to save his people, not because of the judge or not because of the people, but because God is faithful to his people. Amen? Do you realize that? Do you realize how God is so faithful to you even when you're not? And in the way he calls us and draws us back, even when we're wayward and prone to wander, in that, in him drawing us back, it's just another glimpse of his faithfulness to you and me. How many know, like, sometimes when he draws us back, he uses some pretty challenging times, some pretty trying times to get our attention, to discipline us, to shape us, to bring us back into his arms. Sometimes God's amazing grace looks like trial and struggle. But he is so faithful to his people. To help bring us up to speed today, I'm going to do something that I I don't normally do. It's actually something that I, I don't really like doing. In this video in particular, I'm going to show a video that hopefully brings us up to speed. And this video is a little bit long. I would never show a video this long in church because it's just too long. But the illustrative nature of it, I think is really, really helpful to give us an overview of the book and to help bring us up to speed. So before we jump into our text today, I want you guys to watch this. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. 
The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt 
leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. I know it's a little bit long, but I thought the illustrative nature of it kind of helped us see the book overall. Was that helpful at all? Yeah. Okay. So, um, like was pointed out in the video, and like I said in the introduction this morning, uh, the very last line of Judges says this in, in verse twenty, uh, chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. It says, "In those in those days." There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? And really, like, you see this. You see this through the entire book of Judges. Like, they were supposed to go in and take possession of the land and to drive out the inhabitants. And they failed to do that. When you read the very end of chapter 1, they failed to completely drive out its inhabitants, and thus its idols. And thus, the gods in which they worshipped. And what happened is, is that Israel then succumbs to um, idol worship. They start to adopt some of these gods and adopt some of their practices. And next thing you know, because they did what was right in their own eyes, they lost God's vision and God's way, God's direction for them. Last week, we, um, I preached a message called, Where There Is No Vision, the People Perish, right? Looking at Proverbs 29, verse 18, and, and looking at uh, the ESV, it says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no word of God held on to and gone forth before the people, the people then cast off restraint. And you see it so clearly in the book of Judges. 
They lost God's vision. They lost God's precept. They lost God's way because they did everything that was right in their own eyes. And they actually ended up doing what was evil in the eyes of God. Joshua was this good, God-fearing leader who takes them in to possess the land that was promised to them by the God of heaven. As they were enslaved to Egypt all those years, now it was finally time to take possession of the land. And they failed to drive out the, the idols and the idolatry of the land. And now that Joshua's dead, there's no leader with his ear towards God. There's no leader with his heart towards God. There's no leader with his eyes towards God. And you see what happens. Judges 2 verse 11 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of God, and they served the Baals. They fell into idolatry. Uh, Judges 3 verse 7 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their Lord God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Judges 4 verse 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see it over and over again. Chapter 6 again, evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges chapter 8 verse 33 says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again. There's the judge. He dies and the people of Israel turn again and hoard after the Baals and made Baal birth their God. They did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was evil in the sight of God. You see, they didn't care about what their God wanted for them. They didn't care what, uh, what God uh, had for them, the precepts, the commands, the vision of God for their lives. They did what was right according to their own vision. They did what was right according to their own eyes, and they disregarded the Lord's commands they forgot the Lord's precepts, and they forgot the Lord's provision and his faithfulness to them. And so if you have your Bible, you want to turn to Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 6. It's a little bit of, a, of an overview, a little bit of a uh, snapshot of the entirety of the book here. We'll start in verse 6. At this point, Joshua's still alive. It says this, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Right? There's the promise. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So after Joshua passed, there were elders that were still leading, and, and they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8 says, And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him in the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Listen to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So all that generation passed. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Let's pause right there on that line. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Didn't take very long, did it? Like, 
Joshua leads them into the promised land in all of that generation, all of the elders that helped lead Israel at that time, and they all pass away. They all die, and it doesn't take long because the generation that comes up after them doesn't know the Lord or what he had done for them in Egypt. No godly vision or direction with doing what was right in their own eyes with following, without following the commands and the direction of the glory. As they rejected the commands, as they turned their back, in one generation, they had created a godless generation. In one generation, they had forgotten who God was and what he had done for Israel. It just highlights in my mind the importance for us as, as husbands and wives, as parents, to hold fast to the word of God, to hold dear, preach, proclaim, and live the words of God in our homes. The importance of it, because in one generation, the people of Israel had forgotten who their God is and what he had done for them. As I read that this week, I was just struck by the huge, huge weight that I have as a, like more so than a pastor. Like, like as a, a leader in a home, as a husband and a father, for me to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus and to hold it out genuinely, to hold it out fervently, to hold it out authentically day in and day out because it only took one generation for them to forget who the Lord was and what he has done. Husbands and dads in this room, please, oh please, lead your homes. It's not my job. It's not the job of any church. It is your calling in Christ Jesus to lead your home. It is your calling in Christ Jesus to be the pastor of your house for Christ's sake, for their sake. Lead your family in the ways of God. And if you do, hopefully they'll know the Lord and they'll know what he has done for them. Hopefully they won't fall into the same awful awful cycle of sin that you see the Israelites fall into. There's nothing more heartbreaking than to watch your kid um, struggle in sin. Like God has been gracious to us. God has been gracious to me and my wife and our kids, but the thought of them growing up like messes with me in a big way because you realize just how not in control you are. Right? Do you, any of you have got kids who are teenagers or beyond? Like, I don't know how you did it because I'm really starting to struggle now that I have a teenager. Because when they're little, you control every move of their lives. And it's awesome and it's good because you can, you can shape that little path and whatever. And like, you, they fall off the path. You're like, come on. But as you start to give them more freedom, right? And they start to experience the world, right? And the, the world is preaching at them all sorts of things. And it's my prayer and my hope. Like, I love, like, I, I want to be the loudest voice in my kids' lives as long as they'll let me. I want to be, like, and I want that voice to be the voice of, like, preaching the word, preaching the gospel day in and day out because the world's coming for them. And all of its idols are coming for them. 
and all the things that the world holds dear is coming for him. And I want the word of the Lord that, that I was able to shepherd into their lives to stand firm. It will stand firm, but I have to do it diligently, authentically, like just keep pressing the word of God in their life because you know what? They're not mine. <laughs> They're his. And I can't control them every day of their lives. It's funny because, you know, you, you, you start to give them more freedom as they get a little older. And you just hope and pray that they make the right decisions. And when they don't, that's even kind of cool at times too because then you're able to like, all right, hey, you saw that? Okay, there's consequences. Here's the gospel. Here's grace. Dads, husbands, moms, let's lead our families in the gospel. Let's lead our homes in the gospel so that they don't turn to the idols of this world and lose themselves completely in this cycle of sin. Let's keep reading. Judges chapter 2, uh, jump down to verse 11. You actually see the cycle that we've been talking about kind of unfold here. Verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so they're not doing what the Lord wants. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They forgot what God did for them. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, the people that they were supposed to drive out. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He gave, they sold them to the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Okay, so the Lord gave them over to their enemies, their surrounding enemies. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up a judge, raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That is amazing to me. Like, have you, like you, have you, ever, um, have you ever had somebody in your life uh, maybe maybe it's your kids or maybe it's somebody else where you're just like, like, did you just keep kind of doing the same thing? And you're like, ah, why don't you get it? Like, and like after a couple of times, it's hard to have pity on them. It's hard to be compassionate towards them. It's been like, ah, why can't you just figure it out? And your patience grows short and you're like, ah. And yet God hears their cries, hears their groaning. Time and time again, you see it through these 12 different judges, like it happened each time and they cried out to him and he still was gracious and still had pity on them and provided them a judge, a deliverer, a redeemer who would come and rescue them out of their own self-made situation, right? They 
gave up the word of the Lord. They ran from the word of the Lord and they served other gods. And thus, they were oppressed. God could have just said, hey, you made your bed, you lie in it. We have that mentality sometimes. I thank God. I thank God. that he doesn't say, you did it, you figure it out. It's the whole beautiful thing about the gospel. In our rebellion, you know, a lot of times when we think about sin, we think about, um, well, we fell into it. We stumbled into it again. And there is an element of that at times. The deceiver of our souls, the, the enemy of our souls, he deceives us and draws us away. But there's a whole lot in me that is just darn right rebellious. Just darn right, God, I don't want you right now. I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. Not in your word. And then somehow, some way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I come to my senses, just like that prodigal son, just like that prodigal son comes to his senses, what have I done? And I come to my senses, and God doesn't look at me and go, you know what? Figure it out. You screwed up. I'm done with you. But he's gracious, and he raised up a deliverer, and his name is Jesus And he saves me from my sin. And he saves me from the cycle of sin. And I turn and I incline my heart to him. And instead of doing what is right in my own eyes, I turn my heart and my mind and my entire being towards my God. It's the idea of repentance. It's the idea of us repenting and turning from sin. It's a really kind of a a hard concept for us to grasp sometimes. What does repentance look like in the life of the believer, of life of a believer who still feels the tug of that cycle of sin? When we're confronted with our sin, there's a couple of responses that we can have. Sometimes we can resist and we can run. When we're confronted with that sin, sometimes we rise up even more. The pride kind of gets up, and, and instead, of, instead of like turning and repenting, we resist or we run and we hide. It actually makes me think of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Satan comes, form of a snake, comes up to them and undermines the word of God. Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? Because if you eat from it, actually, you're going to be wise like him like totally deceives, totally undermines what God said. Adam and Eve do what is right in their own eyes. Sin enters the world. Shame, pain, hurts enters the world. And what do they do? They run and hide. They run and hide. God's looking from, where, where, where are you guys at? We hid from you because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Shame, sin, cause them to run and hide. And God, one of the first pictures of Jesus that we have, so graciously has pity on them and clothes them, clothes their nakedness, like covers their shame. And that's a beautiful picture of who? Jesus. That us, 
in our sin, us in our hurt, Jesus Christ came, shed his blood, and clothes us in his righteousness. Clothes us in his righteousness. It's not your doing. It's not my doing. It's not my goodness. And it's not my badness. It's all been covered by Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We've been covered by him. He covers our shame. So why do I run? Instead, I incline my ears. I incline my eyes. I incline my heart. I incline my entire being to the Lord and to his word. That's repentance, right? When we think of repentance, right, it, it's often it's 180 degrees. It's a turn. You turn yourself. And so many times I think we think of that as like case by case, like sin by sin basis. It's like we're going, we're going, we're going. Boom, I sinned. Well, got to turn. It's like almost like a, a hamster race kind of thing. It's like, oh, sin, I got to turn. Uh, oh, sin, got to turn. The position of the believer, the posture of the believer needs to be one of repentance. Turn from the world, turn from the idols, and we turn towards God. The thing I ran across this week is actually one of uh, Luther's first works, his first thesis, actually. I believe uh, that's where it's from. Talking about repentance, it says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So the entire life of the believer should be in a posture of repentance, turning from our sinful idolatry and turning towards our God. I think today we still struggle with idolatry the same way that the Israelites do. It's just way more sneaky. It's not this big golden statue that has a furnace in its belly, in its arms out, right? That they would offer up their children in sacrifice to a God. We could probably spot that idol from a mile away and go, that's pretty dark. That's pretty evil. I'm going to avoid that. But there are still cultural idols all around us. All around us. And the Lord your God, through his word, has probably commanded you to drive them out. To eradicate them. To put them to death. And somehow, some way, we like have this flippant, like, casual approach to it. Like it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. When we're um, confronted with, like, that, that's the thing about church these days. That's the thing about American church. Like, we're, we, we have a hard time confronting the idols of our culture. And, and, and in some cases, we actually find a way to incorporate them into our theology, into our preaching. Like the whole prosperity gospel kind of movement, right? What you've done is you've taken an idol of the culture, the American dream to have and get and have and get and get more and to have more. And that's how, that's the sign of being blessed by God and this or that. And then you incorporate that idolatry, that greed into your message. It's the same thing that the Israelites are dealing with. Doing what is right in our own eyes. God has called us to be his and his alone. 
God has called us to be his and to be his alone. And we struggle with idolatry as well. It's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would illuminate those idols in our lives, those struggles in our lives, that we would not treat them casually, but we would see the destructive nature of following them to our hearts, to our souls, and to our families. But then also to realize what God has done is that we are powerless against sin. You and I are powerless against sin in and of ourselves, in our own natural might. And that's the thing, like my response to sin so many times is like, oh, I'll do better next time. I'm just going to, you know, more determination, more grit. I'll figure it out. Ugh. We'll get through it. And really, like, he just wants me to fall on my knees before him and to receive the power that comes through the one who bought me and purchased me with his blood, the one who conquered sin, the one who conquered all of this. And in him and in his spirit, I have freedom over sin, but I just need to turn and position myself to make my life turn and face him again. As we wrap up this morning, we often still struggle with wandering away from our God. Just like the Israelites, pursuing idols, forgetting what the Lord has done for us, forgetting who the Lord himself is. We need a judge, a savior, a redeemer, a deliverer who will rescue us from the oppression and this cycle of sin. And here's the thing about our judge. Here's the thing. Unlike the judges of the Old Testament, our judge does not die. Our judge lives forevermore. The, the cycle that you see in the book of Judges is that once that judge died, they fell right back in it. Like there was like, they just fell right back. But our judge, Jesus Christ, the one who came to redeem us and save us and deliver us, he lives forevermore. And because of that, because he lives and because his spirit lives in us, we can have victory over sin. Today, if you're struggling, turn to your Redeemer. Turn to your Deliverer. Stop hiding. Stop running. If, if in your home you have not been a leader in the gospel, repent, turn, stop being lazy, and lead your family. I don't want this next generation to forget who their Lord is and thus turn to the idols of this world. I don't want us as a church to feel like we're just so beat up over our sin to, to lose sight of the Redeemer, the, the Judge, the Savior who doesn't die, the one who lives forever, the one who empowers his church to be his church. What a glorious thing. Let's incline our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our entire being to our God to do what is right in his eyes, do what is right in his word, to follow him dearly as his church. So this morning, we're going to sing a song in a moment like we always do. I just want you to do some business with the Lord. 
ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart. If there's idols, wipe them out. If there's idols, ask the Holy Spirit to help drive them out. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to confess to uh, a pastor or to a community leader or to a friend in this room and just say, hey, I need help. I need some accountability. I need, I'm struggling. I need, I need a buddy. I need a warrior with me on this. Let's pray together. Let's, let's go to God together. Maybe you've been lazy in your home. Maybe you have not been leading. Repent, turn, start leading, and ask for some help from your brothers and sisters. We'll sing in a moment. Um, back in this corner here, we'll have some people available to pray with you if you like prayer. Um, they'll just probably be praying back there in the meantime. But if you need prayer, if you'd like prayer, please, let's pray together. As we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, we're going to pray. We're going to be a people of prayer. I'm excited for what God's going to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that are in the judges. God, I pray that we would see the seriousness of our idolatry. I pray that we would behold you and see you as our surpassing worth and our greatest treasure. That we wouldn't turn from you. That we would see you as the gracious, loving, redeemer, deliverer, judge who has pity on us, who is gracious with us, who calls us back to yourself and covers all of our sins. Help us not to hide in shame. Help us to live repentant lives. To the glory of Christ Jesus, we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, let's sing together. If you'd like prayer, there's some folks in the corner there. Let's respond.